0: Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. It's a real pleasure for me to introduce Jennifer Dingman who's been our voice of the patient uh, for this entire series over the last year we're now one year it's this is our one year anniversary of producing the 90 minute webinars and the survive and thrive courses that we produced. Jennifer Dingman is one of a membership of a team of what we call the Saturday Morning Team, Uh, and it's kind of a humble name, but uh, I have to tell you, Jennifer has been a wonderful contributor. She was one of the uh, key grassroots leaders to help a Program uh, be pushed across the goal line with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, called healthcare um, called the HACS the healthcare associated uh, conditions which are patient safety conditions um, for for which there are patients uh, many fa- patient safety accidents and errors and we are waiting for the final results but Jenny we want to thank you for participating on our team that has now saved uh, more than two hundred fifty thousand lives and tens of billions of dollars and who knew that our country would allow voices from the grassroots to have so much impact and i'm excited to kind of see what our our student outreach uh, program will do in a grassroots effort as well jenny's been a patient steadfast patient safety leader uh, is a published author and uh, jenny would you please uh, help us uh, set our compass heading for today's program
1: Thank you for the beautiful introduction, Dr. Denham. But remember, none of this could have been done without you and all of your great work. And I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for patients and families through the years. Um, I want to welcome everyone here today for this webinar. This is really, really important. The subject today, and I encourage everyone who is here to please share the the, uh, tape the video, the recording of this uh, webinar with your friends, families, colleagues, spread the word and get the word out that these wonderful webinars exist for patients and families as well as people that are working on the inside of the healthcare system and others that are professionals. I'm very anxious to hear today's program. So I'm gonna turn it back over to you. And again, thank you so much everyone who's here today.
0: Great, Jenny. Many, many thanks for uh, for your steadfast support in this uh, in this effort. Um, so, uh, our topic today are vaccines, variants, and the road to recovery or the road to victory. And the first thing that uh, I-, I want to do is share a video uh, that was recorded just a few days ago by our CDC director. Yesterday,
2: we in the United States surpassed 30 million cases of COVID 19. CDC's most recent data show that the seven-day average of new cases is slightly less than 60,000 cases per day. This is a 10% increase compared to the prior seven-day period. Hospitalizations have also increased. The most recent seven-day average, about 4,800 admissions per day, is up from 4,600 admissions per day in the prior seven-day period. And deaths which typically lag behind cases and hospitalizations, have now started to rise, increasing nearly 3% to a seven-day average of approximately 1,000 deaths per day. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth, even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth, and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script. And I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope. But right now, I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. I know what it's like when you're the physician, when you're the healthcare provider, and you're worried that you don't have the resources to take care of the patients in front of you. I know that feeling of nausea when you read the crisis standards of care and you wonder whether there are going to be enough ventilators to go around and who's going to make that choice. And I know what it's like to pull up to your hospital every day and see the extra morgue sitting outside. I didn't know at the time when it would would stop. We didn't have the science to tell us. We were just scared. We have come such a long way. Three historic scientific breakthrough vaccines, and we are rolling them out so very fast. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director, and not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. I so badly want to be done. I know you all so badly want to be done. We are just almost there, but not quite yet. And so I'm asking you to just hold on a little longer, to get vaccinated when you can, so that all of those people that we all love will still be here when this pandemic ends. The trajectory of the pandemic in the United States look similar to many other countries in Europe, including Germany, Italy, and France, look like just a few weeks ago. And since that time, those countries have experienced a consistent and worrying spike in cases. We are not powerless. We can change this trajectory of the pandemic. But it will take all of us recommitting to following the public health prevention strategies consistently while we work to get the American public vaccinated. I'm calling on our elected officials, our faith-based communities, our civic leaders, and our other influencers in communities across the nation. And I'm calling on every single one of you to sound the alarm, to carry these messages into your community and your spheres of influence. We do not have the luxury of inaction. For the health of our country, we must work together now to prevent a fourth surge.
0: For completeness of our webinar, we've added two important interviews, which took place on Easter morning, April 4th. One is with Dr. Michael Osterholm, who is from the University of Minnesota, a leading epidemiologist. And the second interview was of the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, who's on the board of Pfizer.
3: At the same time, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky issued an emotional warning of impending doom. As case counts continue to rise, personally reaching out to governors to plead with them to reinstate restrictions. Twelve states have seen their highest case counts in two months, and states are racing to get ahead of new variants, which are spreading rapidly, by speeding up their own vaccine rollouts. But is that enough? Joining me now is Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Dr. Osterholm, the last time you were on, um, the metaphor was we are in the eye of the hurricane. That basically... Things were looking, felt rosy, and you said, hey, this is going to get worse. Well, do you believe we're in the midst of this fourth surge, and are we still sitting on a Category 5, or do you think this is a, a manageable fourth surge?
4: Well, thank you, Chuck, for having me again. And First of all, let me say that at this time, we really are in a Category 5 hurricane status with regard to the rest of the world. At this point, uh, we will see in the next two weeks the highest number of cases reported globally Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic in terms of the united states we're just at the beginning of this surge we haven't even really begun to see it yet we have had over the course of the past a year surges of cases that occur in the upper midwest the northeast and they subside then we see big increases in cases through all the southern sunbelt states then it subsides in the northeast and midwest come back again and we're now i think in that cycle where the upper midwest is just now beginning to start this forced surge. And I think it was a wake up call to everyone yesterday when Michigan reported out 8,400 new cases. And we're now seeing increasing number of severe illnesses, ICU hospitalizations, and individuals who are between 30 and 50 years of age who have not been vaccinated.
3: Uh, I want to actually put up some CDC um, headlines from the week because there was a little bit of confusion. And I want you to try to clear it up. And I get there's guidelines and then there's there's uh, interpreting the guidelines. You know, we had the CDC reiterating that Americans should limit their travel as, um, as the U.S. hits 30 million cases. And then, of course, they say fully vaccinated people can travel in the U.S. without tests or quarantines. Then we had the CDC data suggesting that vaccinated folks don't carry or spread virus. Then there's some scientists said, whoa, 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 we don't know if that's the case per se. And then there's this the president of Argentina apparently has COVID after getting the Sputnik vaccine. So clear up this confusion for us. And is the CDC, um, should, it, should they be clear on what our guidelines are?
4: Well, we all want to be clear. And I do give uh, the uh, director of the CDC, Rochelle Lewinsky, great credit for, I think, being a truth teller right now. But let me just give an example on the airplane flight. Uh, when you get vaccinated, it's like buying a fireproof suit that works 90 to 95% of the time, but it doesn't work all the time. So why want to walk into a big fire if you don't have to? So what they are basically saying is, is yes, if you are vaccinated, you can start opening up a lot of things in your life that you couldn't do before. But now, if you know you're gonna be walking into a fire, why do it? So I think their message was completely consistent, although it may have confused the public. So get vaccinated, that's your fireproof suit. But don't put yourself in harm's way unnecessarily because it's not going to be foolproof. I think in terms of all the other recommendations we're looking at right now with the public, that's the challenge we have. And please note this B one one seven variant, the one that we've talked about, the one from the U.K., just as we've talked about it, how it's now 50 to 100 percent more infectious. It causes more severe illness 50 to 60 percent of the time. This is almost like having a whole new pandemic descend upon us. The only good news is our vaccines do work against it. I want to ask you about a a,
3: a mutation within these mutations. It's, I guess, nicknamed the EEC mutation. And it's, I guess, it's less like a variant. And it's a, it seems to be, it's a a calling card of these more virulent, uh, I guess, more, more intense variants here. Um, How concerned are you that this will be the, that
4: will get around our vaccines? Well, I'm concerned about all the variants. Before November, We really didn't understand that this virus would mutate as it does and that in terms of its mutations, it can do one of three things. One, it can be much more infectious. Two, it can cause more severe illnesses. Or three, in some instances, it can actually evade the immune protection from the vaccine or from having previously been infected. The ick that you're talking about, that particular variant uh, addition, is one that does evade the protection of the vaccine or natural infection. Not totally, but it surely compromises them. We're very worried about this. But, Chuck, I'm even more worried about what's coming down the pike over Mm -hmm. the next uh, several years. Right now, if you look at uh, the vaccine distribution around the world, 10 countries have received about 80 percent of the vaccine. 30 countries have not even seen a Mm -hmm. drop of it. If we continue to see this virus spread throughout the low and middle income countries unfettered, they're going to spit out variants over the course of the next years that in each and every instance could challenge our vaccines. This is why we need not only a U.S. response, but we need a global response to get as many people in low and middle income countries vaccinated so we don't risk the actual uh, capability of our own vaccines right here. Now, this is about vaccine security Mm. with these new variants.
3: how are we going to live our lives for the next year? We're we going to have should we be wearing masks? Are we going to be getting a third vaccine shot in the next six months? Um, is, is whatever pre-pandemic normal was never coming back?
4: I don't think so. I think we surely have that opportunity to come back. But in the meantime, please understand this B-117 variant is a brand new ball game. In fact, right here in Minnesota, we're now seeing the other aspect of this B117 variant that hasn't been talked much about, and that is the fact that it infects kids very readily. Unlike the previous strains of the virus, we didn't see mm. children under eighth grade get infected often, or they were not frequently very ill. They didn't transmit to the rest of the community. That's why I was one of those people very strongly supporting right. reopening in-class learning. B117 turns out on its head these kids now are really uh, major challenges in terms of how they transmit the fact that i could sit here and talk about seven hundred and forty nine schools yeah. in minnesota in the last two weeks now having b-117 activity so i the so message would, is we have right to get now, through this right now you would cerc, close schools and this means we're going to have to reconsider what we're doing yeah. now and how we're doing that but that's all to get us to this summer i do believe and i give the administration great okay. credit for how it's bringing forward vaccine as quickly as possible But at the same time we're not going to have nearly enough in the next six to eight weeks to get through this surge and we're going to have to look at other avenues to do that just as every other country in the world who's had a b117 surge has had to do and that's what dr Lewinsky was talking about in all honesty
3: well and what you just said there about in-person school and what's happening with this variant i think a lot of a lot of scientists and the cdc will all be taking that into uh, major consideration what's going on there that is a a very uncomfortable development Dr. Michael Holstrom, as always, thank you for coming on and giving your straight talk to us. Thank you.
5: On this Easter Sunday, we'll take a special look at some of the many inequities exacerbated by COVID-19. We begin with the virus itself. Last week, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky spoke about her fear of impending doom and pleaded with Americans to just hold on a little longer. The CDC also gave vaccinated Americans a green light for air travel, but the TSA reported the highest number of airline passengers since the pandemic began. 18% of Americans have been fully vaccinated. Case numbers are still rising in 27 states and Washington, D.C. In some of those places, the largest number of new cases is among children for the first time. We want to begin with former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer and he joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Doctor, we are vaccinating 4 million people a day, but when you look at the infection levels, do you see a fourth wave?
6: I don't think it's going to be a true fourth wave. I think we've probably um, delayed the point at which we can get this behind us for the summer, but we haven't forestalled that opportunity. I think with the rate of vaccination that we're uh, having right now, we're vaccinating, as you said, 4 million people a day. I think that's probably going to reach 5 million people a day. And the level of immunity that we already have in the population, we vaccinated more than 100 million Americans. We've probably infected about 130 million Americans. So you have somewhere around 200 million Americans that have some level of immunity in them already. I think that there's enough immunity in the population that you're not going to see a true fourth wave of infection what we're seeing is pockets of infection around the country particularly in younger people who haven't been vaccinated and also in school aged children if you look what's happening in michigan and minnesota and massachusetts for example you're seeing outbreaks in schools and infections in social cohorts that haven't been exposed to the virus before maybe we're doing a better job sheltering now they're out and about getting exposed to the virus and they're getting infected So the infection is changing its contours in terms of who's being stricken by it right now
5: you had long been a proponent of reopening for in-person learning given what you're seeing now do you think schools need to shut back down
6: I don't schools aren't inherently safe but they can be made more safe i think we need to uh, stick to strict mitigation in the schools So schools that use masks schools that can implement some kind of distancing as one epidemiologist referred to it this week uh, go the full harry potter and try to keep students within defined social cohorts so that they're not intermingling in large groups if you're taking those measures in schools i think the schools can be made more safe and i think the benefits of being in school outweigh the risk, but we need to be cognizant of the fact that schools are a risk factor, children are vulnerable to the infection and that the schools can become focal points for community spread if we're not careful. I think we're seeing some of that in Massachusetts right now where the greatest proportion of the new infections are among school-aged children. You're seeing the same kind of statistics in Michigan as well. Both states recently reopened schools and I don't think it's a coincidence.
5: Dr. Fauci has said on this program First quarter of 2022 for vaccinations, and then this week he said by the end of this year we should have enough information to safely vaccinate kids of virtually any age. What do you think of this timeline? Is it moving faster than anticipated?
6: I think it's moving quickly. I don't know that it's faster than what we anticipated. We're gonna have data, um, I think, that's gonna inform the FDA's ability to make a decision on the emergency use of the vaccine in 12 to 15 for the Pfizer vaccine. So Pfizer, as you know, the company I'm on the board of, as you mentioned, recently unveiled clinical data, a clinical trial of 2,200 kids aged 12 to 15 that looked quite encouraging. That data is going to be submitted to the FDA. The FDA is going to be in a position to issue an emergency use authorization for that age group. I think that could potentially come in time to have the vaccine available for 12 to 15 before the school year and I think the way to think about trying to vaccinate children is vaccinate different social cohorts. Do we vaccinate high school age kids? Right now the Pfizer vaccines approved down to 16 so that gets you into the high school age set do we start to vaccinate into the middle school. ACIP's ultimately gonna have to, the, the advisory committee to CDC, which is ACIP, is ultimately gonna have to make a recommendation on where they think the vaccine should be used in children. And they're gonna think about it in terms of the social networks and the social cohorts where they wanna introduce the vaccine. High school being the most obvious and perhaps middle school. But I do think we're gonna be in a position to vaccinate 12 and above before the fall. I think younger than that could take more time because you're gonna wanna test a lot of different doses to try to find the lowest possible dose that Mm -hmm. still is providing a robust immune response to kids.
5: You know, I'm sure you've seen this too in your social media feeds. There are a lot of people traveling with their kids right now for spring break. People who didn't celebrate Christmas are celebrating right now, even though Dr. Fauci on this program said it is high risk to walk into an airport. Do you think health officials are, are, are losing their influence at this point?
6: I think you need to be careful as a public health official to issue guidance that you know the public is gonna largely follow. You don't wanna be so out of step with the aspirations and, and where the public is and what the public's gonna ultimately engage in that the, the guidance just gets ignored. You have to issue the guidance in the context of what the public's willing to do. I do think it's important that people like Dr. Fauci and the CDC director, urge caution. I think we should continue to be cautious. We're still in a high prevalence environment. We still have these variants circulating that we don't fully understand. We don't know whether people are getting reinfected by some of these new variants. We should have that information, but we don't. So there's a lot we don't understand about this virus right now, and we don't want to be in a position where we extend the the epidemic because we weren't prudent about the steps that we were taking right now that said people are sensing that there's less risk overall as people get vaccinated they they feel themselves that they're at less risk and they are based on the vaccination and so they're willing to start engaging in the things that they put off for a full year so we need to recognize that and i think issue the guidance in a way that people can conform to it against you know their aspirations which Mm -hmm. is that they want to see family again they want to start socializing they want to start traveling a little bit
5: Uh, Last night, Johnson & Johnson said it would assume full responsibility of vaccine manufacturing at this plant in Baltimore that uh, apparently ruined about 15 million doses of a COVID vaccine. Uh, Our Sarah Cook is reporting that it was at the orders of the Biden administration. Any headline like this hurts confidence? Um, How significant is this problem?
6: Well, I don't think it should hurt confidence in people's perception of the safety of the vaccine. This was ultimately detected uh, as as part of the quality checks that they do in that facility. I don't think they should have been manufacturing two different viral vector vaccines in the same facility. Um, Viruses are sticky. Their genomic material transfers easily. We saw this with the CDC in terms of their failed rollout of their diagnostic tests because they were um, manipulating too many viruses in one facility and there was some cross-contamination. It does appear to be the case that some component of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they were also manufacturing in this facility, got into the Johnson & Johnson Mm -hmm. vaccine. That is the public reporting from officials in the administration. They should not have been doing that in the same facility. I think what this underscores is we just don't have a lot of excess biomanufacturing capacity in this country that we had to use that one facility to do these both things.
5: All right. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks, as always, for your analysis.
0: What we'll be covering today are really three big, enormous opportunities. One is the ability to save lives now, secondly, are the ability is the ability to save lives as we reopen on that recovery bridge to the new normal. And the third is the new normal. When we've been through this pandemic before the next, which may happen more frequently uh, in the future. And when we look at bystander rescue care, and we look at what we can do before experts like our EMTs that are speaking today, uh, Dr. Uh, Christopher Peabody, who's an emergency medicine doctor, gets to treat those patients. What we can do as bystanders so our topic today, our topics today that we'll cover are broken into three sections. First are the vaccines. Um, what are the vaccines? How do they work? What's the adaptive immune system and B cells and T cells? What about vaccine hesitancy? Uh, are our vaccines safe? Um, how long will they last? What are the side effects? What are the differences? And what about kids? We're gonna talk about the variants as well. And these are the mutated variants that are now coming on strong in many places around the world and the B11.7 variant that is striking our country right now. And why are they more contagious and why are they more lethal? And what about the other variants? And then the third section is really our road to victory. And we'll go through uh, a review of our prior survive and thrive guides, just the highlights of what's new. So when you go back and watch our courses, you'll know what what's new and what to emphasize, Uh, what will be that new normal, and uh, what do we do on that road to victory. And we're very excited to have our student leadership team talk about the message of take a shot and play it safe campaign that we're launching immediately to be able to drive vaccinations, but also the safe behaviors that are necessary as we move forward across the bridge. And then finally, what is a good and safe Samaritan? What layers of protection do we need to add as we go forward? So one of three things are going to happen, and we can't predict that today. Uh, We'll either have a gradual decline, we'll either have a plateau because of the variants, or we may have a variant surge. In any case, Uh, There is so much that we can do and focus on. So what I'm going to do today is now move very quickly and just want to draw your attention uh, to a number of articles that have come out in the last few days, but a fourth surge is upon us. I think that most of the epidemiologists believe that there will not be just a plateau, but there'll be a surge. And these articles will be posted on our website for download, and we'll keep updating them. Uh, What's critically important is we've had so many people vaccinated, the rate of vaccination is going up by the day. Um, However, vaccination will not win the race. It's going to be our behaviors and what we do over the next two to three months that will really be critical. It's really a pleasure uh, to have such a tremendous group speaking to you today. Uh, We have physicians, Dr. Gregory Boats, Dr. uh, Toff Peabody, who will be live. Uh, We have Dr. Brittany Bartow, our community Uh, pediatrician. We have Heather Foster, who's an RN and a nurse preventionist. And then we have representatives from the law enforcement and the first responder communities, including law enforcement with Chief Adcox from MD Anderson, John Little, who's a paramedic and also volunteer for faith-based organizations. And then we have a terrific group of representatives from Key constituencies in our community. We have Keith Flitner, Randy Steiner, Charlie Denham, and David uh, Bashk, uh, who are educators, uh, who are leaders in scout programs and leaders in programs that we're focused on in Med with MedTech. And then we have Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Rao, uh, Paul Bataya, Danny Polacicio, Louis Lacone. Uh, uh, Matt, um, uh, Manway Lopez, who is both a scout but also representing the younger group, Dominic, uh, D- uh, Dominic Contreras and Ivy Tran, uh, both from Harvard who are EMTs, all speaking to you today to kind of address a number of these issues as we walk through what we're doing. So for those of you that don't know about MedTAC, MedTAC uh, is the, the fusion of the best medical practices with the best tactical practices. What we can do in those 10 minutes before Emergency uh, uh, medical services arrive before our EMTs or our physicians can help uh, uh, in, during an emergency. It started with this group of Cub Scouts now six years ago, where we tested the concept of using the back the stop the bleed uh, program and CPR programs with the American Heart Association, and it turned out that we can teach, and we have been able to teach uh, everyone from eight to eighty. On the left is uh, Mr. David Bash. He saved the first life in the first three days after learning one of the skills we were teaching uh, our kids. And we've had many lives that we know of that have been saved from the program. uh, And it started to save lives before we graduated our first class. Now we've had a series of articles and you see on the left and I won't won't, uh, uh, spend too much time on them, but the eight leading causes of preventable death for which bystanders or good Samaritans with no medical training can actually double, triple, or even in some cases have seven times the survival rate before our wonderful EMTs who are on today arrive or before our emergency medicine doctors can help us. Our background is that uh, over the last 37 years, we've built a network of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities that has led to a wonderful pool of subject matter experts that are doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, uh, administrative people, financial people, in the area of patient safety and quality, and we drew from that group to start with a 60-member subject matter expert team one year ago in March of 2020 when we saw the this critical crisis uh, uh, appear of the uh, of coronavirus, and we added to that with experts that uh, were became ultimately became leaders in our government in healthcare, and we featured in one of uh, or both of our Discovery Channel films that uh, we've given away for patient safety that have been nationally and and, uh, internationally broadcast and are continuing actually to be shown internationally. So these subject matter experts that represent doctors, uh, nurses, engineers, astronauts, uh, leaders of uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and uh, 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 the Assistant Secretary of Health, uh, Howard Coe, you see there uh, from Harvard, all contributed through the work that we've done together to focus on these 16 industry sectors of the people that keep the food, the water, the light flowing in our communities, the essential workers declared or designated by Homeland Security. And then in August, uh, August 18th of 2020, educators at all service providers for educators were added. Our two discoveries were, we believe that, that family transmission chains were the Achilles heel. It turned out that we were right, if we can save the family, we can save the worker. Uh, If we save the worker, uh, we can help save the nation. And so our focus has been single-mindedly focused on breaking those family transmission chains. We've been producing 90 minute live webinars, uh, full survive and thrive courses, and then very short videos that you'll find on our website that we're constantly updating. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show three videotapes. These three videotapes, Uh, can help us understand and put into context uh, what uh, what we're talking about when we talk about vaccines, variants, and our success. And I'm gonna show them together, one right after the other, because they really reinforce each other and one, addresses how vaccines work. It's an ABC video uh, that was done actually before the vaccines were produced and it helped the public understand them. We've edited it a little bit because we, uh, of its, of its uh, early nature in the trajectory. The second one that I'm gonna show right after that, uh, and I'll just move right to the second video, will be on vaccine hesitancy And then the third, we're gonna address variants because all three of these factors really work together as we look at the work that we need to do uh, as leaders. So many of you are educators and leaders, so many of you are leaders in the community. And so what I'll do now is uh, I'm going to show how vaccines work, but then I'll move to the second and third.
7: The world is waiting for a game-changing vaccine, one that's effective and just as importantly, safe. Vaccine makers are working to create a shop that offers protection against COVID-19 without making the person getting the vaccine sick. So how does a vaccine work? Hundreds of years of experience tell us vaccines can work. Today, vaccines are a powerful tool to prevent people from getting many infectious diseases like tetanus, measles, and the seasonal flu. For many, a natural COVID infection means a mild illness and a quick recovery. But unfortunately for some, the virus moves too fast and is too strong for our immune system to handle gracefully and may end in death. And sadly, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died as a result of COVID-19. So a vaccine is a way to prevent people from getting sick and does so by giving our immune system a competitive edge, the head start we need. When your body is infected with a virus, it's a kind of war, a back and forth battle between the virus and our immune system. The immune system is made up of different combat battalions working together to kill the virus before the virus gains too much territory in our body beat the first immune system battalion these troops act fast before knowing what the enemy even looks like doing things like mounting a fever to make that infectious invader uncomfortably hot inside your body but what if the virus breaches that first line of defense Luckily, the immune army can quickly deploy a second battalion called the adaptive immune system. Soldiers that can adapt and learn what the virus looks like to begin a more strategic operation against the virus. In this battalion, the soldiers are called B cells and T cells. They mount a custom-made fight against a specific invader, in this case, COVID-19. Here's the playbook. B-cells get word something has invaded the body and head out on a mission. If they see a virus they don't recognize, they need to quickly figure out how to make the right weapon to defeat it. And that weapon, those golden antibodies we keep hearing so much about. Antibodies that latch on and neutralize the virus. Another soldier in that second battalion is the T-cell one type of T-cell reinforcers, helping those B-cells make key antibodies. And look here, there's another special group of T-cells called Killer T-cells. Think of these like highly trained Navy SEALs that go in for a direct kill cells infected with the virus. In amazing coordination, B-cells and T-cells work together to kill invaders at the same time. And after successfully destroying the virus, the immune system has one last special trick up its sleeve keeping a kind of photographic memory of everything it sees stored in a time capsule of immune cells called memory cells. And that sleuth strategy usually means once our immune system meets something it doesn't like, it often doesn't forget, at least in the short term. And that's how a vaccine makes its way into the immune army playbook. The strategy is that when you get a vaccine, it triggers all of your immune troops into action, but without making you sick. And it's this last step, the memory time capsule, that means a vaccine you get today can protect you in the future. But remember, vaccines don't actually give you the virus. None of the vaccines being studied for COVID in the U.S. have virus that's alive. The vaccine is teaching your immune system how to fight the virus, so we can't get COVID from getting a vaccine. There are hundreds of vaccines in different phases of development.
0: So our next topic that we want to cover is vaccine hesitancy. The hesitancy to uh, to uh, think about getting the virus or, or getting the vaccine and the hesitancy to execute on getting it.
8: They've already started working on it, developing very rapidly a vaccine for the virus to combat the virus.
9: In early 2020, Scientists around the world began racing to develop vaccines to protect people from the new COVID-19 virus. But even with widely available vaccines just on the horizon, trust in the vaccine is fairly low. I'm not interested. I'm waiting till see other vaccines come out. Safe and effective vaccines are proven to reduce deaths and help end pandemics. So why are people unwilling to take them? And how do you build trust in a vaccine we may not know everything about yet? Vaccines for COVID-19 have been developed faster than any vaccine in history.
10: We don't usually have 180 research labs across the world doing it. We don't have 100 companies across the world doing it. We, didn't, we don't devote $24 billion to doing that. That's the difference. The usual expectation is it's about eight to 10 years to do this. But people are dying, and we
11: needed to do this at unprecedented speed.
9: Previously, the vaccine that had been developed the fastest was for mumps, which took four years and was approved for licensing in 1967.
12: We have a whole new suite of new technologies and opportunities we haven't used in previous times. From a scientific or political point of view, it's an achievement. But from a public point of view, it's like, whoa, that's way too fast.
13: We're still seeing some hesitancy about the vaccines, taking the vaccine,
8: even from healthcare workers.
11: That's the reason why we've got to continue to get that message out, that the process by which the vaccines were made were a standard process that was rapid because of exquisite scientific advances. I think a lot of people are troubled about the way in which this particular year with our country so divided, this whole process of developing vaccines, like everything else, has taken on political overtones
12: The COVID vaccine is not only a new vaccine, it's a brand new virus we're learning about every day. These vaccines are made in ways that no other vaccine has been made.
11: A lot of the polls suggest as many as half Americans may say, I'm pretty skeptical, I'm not sure I want this. Resistance to vaccines goes back a long way. It didn't just happen in the last 20 years or the last two months.
9: In 2019, the World Health Organization ranked vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health.
12: New vaccines are the most vulnerable to hesitation, doubt, questions. Only a small
9: majority of Americans said they would take vaccines introduced
12: during the last four pandemics. It's seeming to take shortcuts, being too quick, in the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, that was one of the biggest reasons for people not taking that vaccine. And that was a much more familiar vaccine. I mean, that was based on your more typical seasonal flu vaccine.
11: Unless you get to the point where 70, 80, maybe 85% of the population is immune, the virus still has plenty of people that it can attack, who can then spread it to other people who are not immunized. And so it goes on and on.
9: Vaccines have helped put a stop to past epidemics like polio, measles, and smallpox. When a safe and effective polio vaccine was introduced in 1955, cases dropped by nearly half in just a year.
11: When the polio vaccine was developed, this was a moment of national celebration. You couldn't be alive in 1953 or 54 without being worried about what this might mean for your family.
14: There are many factors that have really changed over the course past 40, 50 years since we've seen that polio vaccine. Technology has changed. How we deliver health care has changed. So much has changed in general around how folks are receiving news.
9: Confidence in vaccines has eroded over time. Just in the last 20 years, the number of Americans that believe that it's important for their children to be vaccinated has dropped from 94% to 84%. While there are groups that are ideologically opposed to vaccines, there's a much larger portion of people who are just nervous about them.
14: We are in an era now where patients are extremely informed and they are taking control of their own healthcare. And that means that they wanna see the data themselves. They wanna be able to do their own research.
9: Things like misinformation, political climate, and bad personal experiences can all contribute to vaccine hesitancy. The number one concern when it comes to vaccines are potential severe side effects.
11: Yes, people do get sore arms. <laughs> Many of us who've had a flu vaccine will know sometimes your arm hurts the next day. Uh, some people have had low-grade fever.
10: That certainly happens with other vaccines as well. When your immune system is challenged with either a natural virus or with, uh, in this case, a vaccine, it revs up. The immune system needs a better public relations team because we always call them adverse events or serious side effects when it's really just reputes immune system doing what it always does. We don't know if there might be a rare
11: person who after having this vaccine had some other long-term consequence that didn't appear in a two-month period. But we know from other vaccines, that's the window where if some trouble is gonna happen, it usually does. You gotta balance that against the chance of
10: dying from this disease if you're not immune.
9: But building confidence in vaccines, especially during a pandemic, can be difficult.
10: I mean, if you ask me the question, would I take a COVID-19 vaccine right now? I would say, let me see the data. And I think once I, I see that, and I see that, for example, my age is represented in, the, in these trials, and, and were I an African American, or were I, you know, in the member of the Latinx community, or if I had diabetes, or I was overweight, I wanna make sure that I am represented in all these trials so that I can feel comfortable getting the vaccine, and then and only then would I get it.
9: Advertising and education campaigns can help get data out to a wide audience.
8: I want you to know that vaccines are safe, effective, and they keep your child and
15: your entire community healthy
9: but trusted community members and leaders may be the best tool for building confidence in vaccines.
10: In the distant past, you know, you would have celebrities get vaccines, like Elvis Presley gets the polio vaccine.
12: Find the right people in the community who can turn to their peers and say, what are your questions? Sometimes it's a school teacher, sometimes it's a religious leader.
11: I particularly think this is gonna be important in communities that have traditionally been distrustful of medical research for or sometimes good reasons, like African-Americans who all remember Tuskegee, or Latinos who aren't always sure that our healthcare system is well designed for them. They need to hear from doctors who are part of their community.
14: The best thing a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist can say to a patient to help them feel confident in the vaccine is that I got it too. I was also vaccinated and I'm okay.
9: COVID-19, additional factors like wanting to get back to normal life could also help motivate people to be vaccinated. You may be
12: able to go back to work. You may be able to get on an airplane or go to a sporting event or a concert.
10: I mean, I think as the vaccine gets out there and people feel more comfortable about it being safe and you're starting to see the numbers go down, I'd like to think people will get more and more comfortable back into the vaccine.
0: So final videotape and why it's important to watch all of these together.
16: This is a spike protein. It's what gives the coronavirus its unmistakable look. And scientists think it may be the key to why new variants of the virus are becoming more transmissible.
15: A new study by the CDC is raising the alarm on the coronavirus variant spreading across the country. The
7: fast-spreading COVID-19 variant first found in the UK is now evolving in a way that
17: could make existing vaccines less effective.
16: New research shows that the more transmissible variant from the UK, called B117, will likely become the most common version of the virus in the US.
15: The big concern is that with more transmissible variant, you have more cases and you have more chance for super spreading events and epidemic surges, which overwhelm our healthcare systems.
16: Here's the science behind why these new variants are spreading faster and what this could mean for vaccines. Like other viruses, when the coronavirus replicates, small genetic mistakes or mutations can occur.
11: You can be almost certain that as long as there's a lot of virus circulating in the community,
15: there will be the evolution of mutants because that's what viruses do. Many of those do nothing. Some of those actually confer a survival benefit for the virus to transmit more effectively, for instance.
16: Abra Karan is a global health physician who has been studying the coronavirus pandemic.
15: And so as it does that, it has a better chance of spreading to new hosts and continuing to replicate in those hosts.
16: Quran says this is likely what is happening with a new, more transmissible variants appearing around the world. Recent research has shown that a number of these new versions of the virus have mutations that affect the spike protein. Take a look at this model of the coronavirus. You can see each spike protein is made up of three identical parts known as protomers. These protomers have the ability to change their position from closed to open, affecting how easily they can bind to and infect human cells.
18: You can visualize it like a flower. So you've got petals on the outside, the really obvious thing that you see. There are three of them. The three of them have to bind to the receptors.
16: Jeremy Lubin is a virologist who studies the coronavirus. He explains that when the protomers are down, infection is more difficult. But when these parts are up and open, it's much easier. In the first version of the coronavirus that originated in China in 2019, these protomers usually had a closed shape, which may have made it less transmissible than some more recent versions of the virus. This is another view of the spike protein that helps to show where these mutations occur. In the winter of 2020, one mutation known as D614G emerged. It appears in this region of the spike protein. This mutation made it more likely for the spike to have an open shape, increasing the virus's ability to infect human cells. Soon after the mutation emerged, variants that had it took over.
18: So by June, Pretty much all the viruses around the planet had this change, this mutation. Our belief is that it supplanted the original virus because it was more transmissible.
16: Lubin thinks this is what is happening with some of the new variants that are emerging around the world as well.
18: In the United Kingdom, that variant really expanded very rapidly. It was first seen in September and now it's, it's the dominant version of the virus circulating in the United Kingdom does indeed appear as if the same thing happened in South Africa.
16: Another element that affects the spike protein is antibodies. These are proteins that defend the body against the coronavirus by blocking the ability of the spike protein to attach to cells, which prevents the virus from infecting. Antibodies are produced by the immune system in response to infection or vaccines. And so far, the new coronavirus variants scientists are worried about all have mutations that affect the spike protein. Here are some that scientists are focusing on. The first is called N501Y, which was first detected in the variants from the UK and South Africa in the second half of 2020. This mutation is located in a region of the spike protein known as the receptor binding domain, or the RBD. This is the main location where the virus attaches to human cells and infects them. The N501Y mutation seems to be helping the virus bind, which could help explain the higher transmissibility. The second mutation that scientists are focusing on is called E484K. It's found in variants from South Africa and Brazil and reduces the ability of certain antibodies to bind to the RBD, which helps the virus's chances of infecting cells.
18: What the antibody recognizes is a shape. If you're playing with blocks and you have, a, you have triangles and, and uh, circles and you have to fit them into the appropriate holes, can't fit a circle into a triangular hole, Um, it's analogous to that. If the virus then changes so that it's no longer a triangular hole, but it's a circular hole, then the, the antibody will no longer fit.
16: Scientists have also found that some of the new coronavirus variants have parts missing in a region that comes off the side of the spike protein. This is known as the n terminal domain.
18: Some of those mutations are removing surfaces of the protein that other antibodies bind to. If the virus mutates that surface or deletes it, those antibodies are no longer going to work to block the virus.
16: Scientists say this may help explain why current vaccines may be becoming less effective against some new variants. This is why experts are urging caution.
15: Variants are going to continue emerging and we need a public health strategy that addresses it, we have to focus on getting better ventilation. We have to get people better personal protection, better higher grade masks that can filter better. We have to test, we have to trace, we have to isolate the fundamentals of epidemic control.
16: And Karan says that while vaccines should still be effective in preventing severe illness, a booster variant shot may be needed later in the year.
15: They work extremely well right now, right, with Moderna and Pfizer, 95% vaccine efficacy. They will start to work less well against some variants into the future. But that is to be expected, and that is why vaccines will be a major part of COVID control for the foreseeable future.
16: Experts continue to emphasize the importance of getting vaccinated, along with other strategies to keep transmission low and stop the spread.
0: So. The reason that we uh, have shown all of these together is because so many of these issues are interrelated. So let's talk about these three areas and really give our speakers and panelists a chance to kind of voice their their thoughts. Um, We talked, we've covered how the vaccines work. You learned about the adaptive uh, immune system, hesitancy, starting the conversation, um, the safety issues we'll come back to, Uh, and the side effects as well. So we've got some great speakers, and we also want to kind of address some of the newest things that have just come out. So uh, March 29th, article came out, How Long Will the the Vaccines Protect You? And there were a number of uh, experts that weighed in on this topic, and we've heard 90 days kicked around as a topic. However, uh, just today, uh, the article came out of Pfizer's announcement that the vaccine remains highly effective after six months. So we could see that the science is evolving continually. And we like to say that the scientists and the CDC tell us uh, the what we need to know and that our group works very hard as to the how. They'll tell us the what. Now, how do we apply that? And this, I think, can help reduce some of the hesitancy to say, look, this is of great benefit. Another article that just came out two days ago was, was the Pfizer announcement that COVID vaccine is 100% effective in kids ages 12 to 15, which was really awesome news. The trial was uh, 2,260 uh, participants and uh, no confirmed infections in the group that received the vaccine. Again, the data will continue to stream. And I think it's really important for that those of us that are leading and educating others uh, to keep our finger on the pulse of what's coming out. Uh, on, these, uh, on these topics. So Brittany uh, Bartow is a board certified uh, pediatrician. I've actually known her family since before she was born. Uh, she is a terrific community pediatrician and uh, she's gonna add uh, some practical uh, insights as to what's going on in the pediatric realm. Brittany, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. I know that you're busy with your practice and couldn't uh, attend the webinar. Um, tell us a little bit about your practice as a pediatrician.
14: Um, so, I'm, I'm an outpatient pediatrician outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, for the past year, obviously, we've been in, in a pandemic. Um, it has been interesting seeing the sort of changes. Um, we have a lot less volume of sick patients, flu, RSV, strep pretty much gone in the population right now. Um, And a lot of people are still a little nervous to come into their wells, but we do take really good safety precautions and more people have been trickling in recently, which is really, really good.
0: Fantastic. As we kind of think about kids, let's just go through the ages. What do we need to know about young children, babies to two years of age or any way you break it down? Can you tell us what you tell young moms and new parents about what we need to know about the vaccines and what we need to know about that age group?
14: Sure. So, the the vaccines are not available for that age group yet. Um, Pfizer is available for 16 and up. Moderna and J and J are for 18 and up. Um, but especially with the younger moms that are breastfeeding or pregnant, we do talk a little bit about the vaccine for them. So, the you know the COVID trials didn't look specifically into pregnant or breastfeeding women, but there's a lot of data that's been collected as we're vaccinating you know, people on a daily basis, millions of people on a daily basis. And the the data has been reassuring so far, there haven't been any major safety concerns. So the American Academy of Pediatrics and ACOG, which is the Obstetrics and Gynecology Association has stated there's no contraindication to being pregnant or breastfeeding. And some really exciting data Ooh. recently has shown that pregnant women who have received the vaccine are actually creating antibodies that are getting passed into the through the placenta into the babies, so they're actually having um, antibodies against COVID, similarly to moms who get the flu vaccine or the Tdap while pregnant. Um, so hopefully, offering some protection there. Breastfeeding moms as well—they found COVID antibodies in the breast milk. So hopefully, the you know we do talk about the pregnant moms and the breastfeeding moms getting the COVID vaccine um, to help protect their little babies.
0: So, so to put a sharper edge on it. If someone is pregnant, uh, is it recommended that they get the vaccines right now or is it better to hold off? And the second question is if they if they find out that they're pregnant and they had the vaccine, is it safe?
14: So there's still data. there's not a there's not a specific recommendation. It's really not a contraindication at this point. So I don't think either association, is 100% going to say absolutely get it, but they say preliminarily based on the data, we think it's safe. Um, and that's all they can, I think that's all they can really say with the data we have now, not having a, an official study out yet.
0: Right, so when do you think that we'll be able to have the vaccines for kids under 16?
14: So there, there are trials for Pfizer and Moderna right now for the 12 to 15 and 12 to 17 age groups that hopefully will be wrapping up this summer and the hope there is that by the next school year the the vaccines will be available to them and they can get vaccinated in the fall. Um, they're actively recruiting for six months up to 11 years old for both the Pfizer and Moderna. And they just started um, you know, giving vaccines to those age groups this month. So that data will hopefully be around the end of 2021 or early 2022. It'll be so a little while longer, but still it's in the works at this point, which is really exciting.
0: So for those of you that would like to hear a little bit more of our interviews, we're mindful of everyone's time. Uh, We have more extended interviews of each of the experts that we talk to. uh, And so you'll hear some uh, snippets of some of the topics, but if you would like to hear more from uh, Dr. Bartow and our other speakers, we'll have more uh, on the website uh, over time. And we'll be adding a lot of the additional studies that are coming out almost on a daily basis, as you can see. Paul Bataya is the president of Anteater Emergency Medical Services. He's a pre-med student. He's at the University of California at Irvine. Uh, He's one of my heroes. He stepped up to help build the auxiliary hospital that we needed in Orange County for the University of California at Irvine when we knew that we were going to be super saturated with patients and uh, was on the news uh, numerous times Um, as a speaker because he helped organize and then helped build uh, the auxiliary tent hospital uh, that was able to accommodate the the surge. He's also been uh, leading uh, vaccinations at multiple centers along with Randy Steiner, who you'll hear from live uh, in a few minutes. And uh, so Paul is also one of our uh, leaders of our student outreach program, and you'll be hearing from a number of our student leaders here in just a moment.
19: So what we've done at the University of California uh, Bren Event Center—it's a recreational athletics facility—we um, since mid-January have have set up a point of dispensing, which is just a location where we're going to be administering a lot of vaccines. We cranked out thousands per week. Uh, you know, your your Moderna, your Pfizer recently started Johnson and Johnson. It's been it's been really effective. We've we managed to make it super hyper efficient, and we don't waste any doses. So that's pretty. It's pretty amazing and it's, it's it's taken a lot of hard work from everybody from the university really from you know administration to our volunteers to our emts uh to help run the show so and
0: people uh, are worried that uh, they're going to have an immediate reaction and you you actually set aside a place for them to sit and wait for the proper amount of time so that uh you can catch anybody if they were to have a reaction did you see any reactions adverse events at all
19: Um. Uh, Nothing that uh, that gets in the news pretty often. So, uh, you know, the, the, there's something called anaphylaxis, which is severe allergic reaction. That uh, That's really the, the big um, uh, allergic reaction that you want to look out for when it comes to uh, adverse reactions. But we haven't seen a single case of that, at least at the Brent Event Center thus far. Um, you know, we've had other situations that, you know, that could have been more psychologically induced, maybe a little bit of anxiety, uh, concern about, you know, thinking, hey, I'm probably going to get a side effect, and they start thinking that you know that's going to happen. But nope, we, everyone has been pretty safe and 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 okay for the most part.
0: So the next topic really comes from uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal very recently, which really was a shocker to a lot of us, and it addresses this issue of. Uh, uh, of vaccine hesitancy, and that it is not as major a problem as we might have seen in the press, and we're seeing things improving, but we've got terrific opportunities for improvement. So uh, I highly recommend this article. Uh, It also addresses which states uh, where the the vaccinations, as the vaccinations are ramping up, which states uh, where uh, hesitancy is dropping off. Uh, Very few are going up, as you can see, uh, in the graphics uh, uh, before you. And as we look at um, the, um, the issue of uh, uh, each of the topics, white Americans, uh, you can see an improvement in, in vaccinations and hesitancy, we still have uh, a, a significant opportunity there. Black Americans have improved quite a bit in terms of uh, 34% to 58% already vaccinated or definitely will be. However, we still are at 42% in the probably will or probably or definitely won't. So there's a great opportunity with people of color as well. Uh, However, things are improving, which is great news. The, The big surprise was the great opportunity that our student leaders have. And when we were building our program, we were thinking of, The groups that were so often cited as being hesitant uh, uh, to uh, undergo vaccination and realize in their own age group, there's a terrific opportunity of 23%, probably or definitely won't, and the probably will to convert those to getting them vaccinated is is a terrific opportunity. So not only are our students able to reach out, and you'll hear a little bit more about that, but actually to their own groups. Now, the other topic that, and again, this article was yesterday in the in New England Journal of Medicine. I highly recommend reading the vaccine passport certification issues, all kinds of divided um, uh, positions on these. However, we know commerce is probably going to drive the, the vaccine uh, passport as it does for those of us that travel, uh, travel uh, uh, globally. We know that uh, it, it helps so tremendously to be able to do that. I'm going to stop right now with, what we've laid as a foundation for the vaccines and uh, go to uh, uh, Dr. Christopher Peabody. He's an emergency physician, assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine. Toff and I met at Harvard when he was a third year medical student uh, and he is just doing a terrific job at UCSF. He's our lead collaborator at UCSF, although we also have the nursing group there uh, and has been a wonderful contributor clinically uh, to, uh, to the work that we're doing. Uh, Toph, would you like to kind of uh, uh, give us your impression uh, of the vaccine area? And we'll come back to you as we talk about the variants and we talk about uh, also the road to victory.
20: Yeah, Chuck, I can talk to you about um, uh, my personal experience and then my role in uh, as an operational leader in the emergency department. Um, my personal experience of getting the vaccine was uh, one of um, uh, profound relief. Um, I, I, the The pandemic has taken such a toll on us emotionally, and um, you know, being on the front lines is going through and working through how to actually take care of this novel coronavirus and um, I think I can speak for most of us um, on the front lines. When we um, were able to get the vaccine, we jumped at the opportunity. Um, I will say that, um, that we do have uh, colleagues that are a little more cautious and wanted to see how the vaccine uh, kind of played out. And uh, that was surprising for a lot of us, especially in operational roles who wanna see our entire staff vaccinated so that we can stop the spread locally. And the thing that I took away from this is that we have to listen to uh, folks that are hesitant to get the vaccine. A lot of times these are really smart people and they could be your colleague um, and really listening to the reasoning why they're choosing to wait. And most of the time it's choosing to wait rather than to forego the vaccine completely. There are those that just don't believe in vaccines and sometimes uh, um, they won't be able to be assuaged with any amount of data. But I think the majority of people that are hesitant about vaccines are waiting on more data. Um, They wanna see um, how it plays out. And for those of us that got vaccinated early in the first round, uh, we've seen a profound, um, we've seen that this vaccine works profoundly. And uh, we've seen uh, that this vaccine is continuing to work with very minimal side effects. And we've, uh, we just, you know, I'm just incredible i incredibly grateful for the science that was um, in, enabling me to get vaccinated personally. Um, it was an emotional experience and that um, I hope my uh, wife uh, can, uh, can get soon um, and I would give it to my children um, when it becomes available. Um, I uh, could not recommend it uh, enough, um, given the data that we have and that has been presented in this webinar. Um, and uh, I would recommend it to each one of you and to your families, um, get vaccinated with any of the vaccines that have been approved by the FDA as soon as you can. Um, And that will um, protect yourself as well as those around you.
0: Thank you, Chuck. And we're gonna come back to you uh, when we talk about the variants and some of these serious issues. So I'm going back to this surprising slide regarding the 18 to 29 year olds. And the reason is, that we have a terrific opportunity with our student-led group, uh, our student outreach group, and we'll actually, uh, we we had such a blessing. So uh, as a subscriber to the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of our top global uh, journals, this article just came out uh, yesterday and it really will feed our group with some great questions and answers that have been tested in a train-the-trainer program. Um, and they really spent some time to figure out what are these reasons for hesitancy? How did the tri- Why did the trials go so quickly? You mentioned that, tough the, the the concern of how it's gonna play out. Um, how, we heard in the videos, uh, were the vaccines tested on people like me? Do they work for all races? Uh, should I get a vaccine now or wait and see? Um, and we covered some of the topics in the videos that we did, uh, uh, you know, as well. Uh, and the, you know, the nature of the mRNA vaccine and which vaccine is best, and then this on the road to recovery, the safety issues. And so I'm really delighted for our student-led team, which will meet on Saturday uh, t- in two days hence, that we really have a great paper that had uh, really good questions and answers for those that are mentoring. Uh, our, our high school students and helping us. So I'm really, really honored to have a wonderful group. Paul, you heard from. You'll hear from Charlie Denham um, in a little bit, our freshman, my son, who helped co found the MedTech program. Jamie Irastorsa, who is uh, w- interning with us, uh, an inbound and in- an incoming already accepted me- medical student. Dominic Contreras, uh, as well as uh, Jennifer Rao. Uh, Luis Lacone, who is working on our apps, Emanue Lopez, you'll hear from him um, as a representative of outreach to young people, especially in Scouts, and then Danny Pulisiccio at NYU and Ivy Tran also from Harvard, who's the chief actually of the Crimson Service there. Um, we're really, really blessed to have, uh, we only have so many slots today for our students to speak, but uh, in future webinars, you'll hear from all of them from uh, some of our leading universities and we're adding new universities all the time. We're adding alumni staff who might be clinical leaders like Top, but we also uh, have uh, the students that are on the ground. Uh, so as we were thinking about the message that we could use to mentor high school students that they then could reach their own families and their colleagues. And I'm gonna have Genevieve tell a little bit of her story about how they got the vote out. We came up with the message of take the shot, play it safe. Take the shot, play it safe. And we all love sports. Uh, that's our country. And the idea is, is that uh, if we can help people move across that barrier of hesitancy and beating the fake news, we're not going to dwell on the, the, what I call the MIGs, the misinformation generators in social media. But there are nation states that want us not to get vaccinated. They don't want our economy to recover. And unfortunately, they're dividing us when we really should be united. And the play it safe component is to keep wearing the masks, minimize the potential risk for mutants to develop. And because the biggest problem we have with this virus is asymptomatic spread. So you you can be infected, you can be infectious as you're uh, waiting to get your vaccine, even after the vaccine, much lower numbers, but we need to overcome the three whys. Why vaccinate, why wait, and why now? And so Genevieve is, is a, at Harvard University. She's the president and founder of New Voters. Uh, she's uh, one of our leaders of our MedTech student outreach program. Uh, Genevieve, what I would love for you to do is just share a little a snapshot of what you've already done in terms of uh, getting the vote out, and then uh, your vision and excitement for what we can do through the Uh, the network of 250 high schools you already have or more and how we can use some of your best practices to drive people uh, to overcome hesitancy, but also play it safe as we reopen. Genevieve?
21: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Denham and everyone that we've heard speak so far. It is so interesting to learn more and more about uh, this virus as it develops and we learn more about it. And I'm very Excited and ready to get my vaccine whenever I am able to. Um, so, a little bit about me, as Dr. Denham was kindly saying, I am the president and founder of New Voters, which is a 501c3 national student led organization that worked to register 50,000 students for the 2020 election. And we did this through mobilizing high school student leaders at our 250, 300 high school chapters across the country. And the way that this, is this our model really relies on is the innate capabilities and talents of high school students. So it's, we're, we're very against the paternalistic aspect of, you know, going in and, and running a drive ourselves. It's all about, and I think MedTech perfectly um, embodies this, you know, making people, uh, giving people the tools to create change in their own communities. Uh, so what we do is we match every high school student leader with a personal mentor who walks them through the every single step of running a registration drive and a civic engagement program at their high school. So through this, we were able to have students running, going into classrooms, virtually, uh, doing text banks, doing social media campaigns. And you might be already hear, thinking this in your head, but this translates super well into a vaccination uh, campaign as well. And some people, on this call, as well as um, the New Voters team, and obviously Dr. Denham are part of developing our high school and our in general student outreach program to get high school students and um, potentially college students as well vaccinated, as well as having conversations with their parents about vaccinations um, and grandparents. Uh, and what the campaign that we are using, as Dr. Denham put up, was. Uh, take a shot, play it safe. And obviously this plays in super well with basketball. Currently it is, I believe, March Madness, I'm not <laughs> super, but I, I think so, yes. And um, the, so obviously basketball is super salient in a lot of people's head right now uh, and potentially getting some influencers in on the campaign to, you know, say the slogan, get high school students uh, it in their head about, you know, okay, like, you know, social norming vaccines and uh, making it like, anticipatory for when, for when you're able to get it, um, as well as giving them the resources specifically about the variant. Um, I was interested to find out uh, here and in conversations with Dr. Denham and in readings that the variant is even more dangerous for young people. It actually has the potential to make it so that they are not able to like play sports going forward. And I think that that's something that's super convincing for young people, even more so than, than, you know, the statistics about the number of deaths, deaths and the number of people they could spread the vaccine to with the, the current variant. Um, so I think that simultaneously educating on the new variant and how it's even more important to, to mobilize around and to, you know, keep, play it safe, uh, you know, keep your distance, stay masked, be careful if you, go to spring break um, or maybe just abstain from going at all. Uh, and also, you know, take a shot and get your vaccine. I was super surprised to find out that a lot of people in my age group are not getting vaccinated. Um, and I think that, you know, having a lot of people talking about it, specifically the influencers that we we look up to and we watch uh, can be really, really great. Um, and pushing this message, having our college, uh, students on the call be mentors to high school students to run campaigns at their school. It's gonna be super successful and I'm super excited to see how it goes.
0: Well, thank you, Genevieve. And we'll come back to you as we, as we uh, rotate through our reactors. Uh, and thank you for your leadership and offering your team to be able to leverage the network. And now we know we can really go after people in your age in the same group that you got out to vote. Uh, Danny Policiccio, uh has been an assistant producer with us with MedTech uh, and has worked with us since almost the very beginning of MedTech uh, providing all kinds of multimedia support. He's now an NYU film student in New York City. Danny, uh, anything you would like to add to what uh, Genevieve said or anything that you'd like to underscore?
22: Uh, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Denham. And just I feel very lucky for a, being able to hear everything everyone everyone's said so far. Uh, I just want to go off uh, what Genevieve's saying about how our age group, people are really not wanting to get vaccinated and the importance of looking towards social media influencers and just social media in general to help push the uh, pro vaccination message towards people in our age group. Because I do believe that through social media, websites, and everything else like that, could really help uh, increase the amount of people in the 18 to 29 range and getting vaccinated.
0: Great. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. Um, it, You know, and we're going to be rotating through all of our uh, team here today. And uh, for those of you that are watching the Enduring content, we'll have longer interviews. So uh, Louis Lacone is a uh, MedTech app developer. He's working on Two apps, one is for care moms. And one of the things that we had identified was that 70% of, to even maybe 80% of healthcare decisions for families are made by women uh, in a a family. They might be a mom, they might be a daughter, they might be a grandmother, but uh, many, many healthcare decisions are made. And we're also making almost a mirror image med tech that is non-specific to to women um, uh, app. Uh, in order to provide the quick decision support on a smartphone uh, to get those answers that uh, we need regarding quarantine, isolation, now vaccination, and then as we are reopening, lots of key questions that are kind of running the gamut of do I wear a mask now that I was vaccinated? What do I do around other kids and, and combining bubbles? So um, he, is, uh, he is a UCI graduate and we're really honored to have him contributing his time to uh, build the apps. Uh, 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 Luis, what would you like to add to what
22: you're hearing? No, I I definitely agree with uh, basically what everyone has said. Uh, I think the mobile apps, at least from um, our perspective, we really want to make sure that the information is readily available for everyone. So we have uh, MedTech Global, which is our website uh, where people can see, but also uh, most people have smartphones. They don't really have a PC. So we want to make sure that we have mobile apps are both in the iOS store and also the Google Play store where they can download our app and then we can update the app. They can check in maybe every once in a while to see, okay, what are the CDC guidelines for this month? And yeah, really just make sure we have information readily available.
0: Fantastic, thank you. Appreciate it. Now, we appreciate your uh, your great work uh, uh, on this and, and learning new skills all, all, all the time because it's definitely an area that where we're, uh, things are changing. Um, uh, Dominic Contreras is uh, an EMT. He is one of the team, the Crimson uh, EMS team at Harvard and uh, leading outreach. He's a sophomore honors uh, uh, student, uh, and uh, he has, uh, and I, I, I love uh, reading his bio and about uh, his ultimate focus on uh, the degrees that he wants to uh, uh, attain. Uh, uh, what would you like to add, Dominic, and uh, just let the audience know where you're, where you're heading in terms of uh, healthcare.
17: Yeah, so um, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Dominic Contreras. Um, currently, I would like to, in the future, become a pediatrician. Uh, pediatric EM is my goal. I would also like to get my uh, master's of public health, potentially by doctors of public health. But um, something I would like to add to this conversation um, is like the, the minority communities who are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus pandemic, um, especially in terms of like uh, the vaccinations, um, I have currently been involved with canvassing with two different um, like grassroots organizations when it's come to uh, kind of getting out information to minority communities, especially black and brown communities. And, you know, one thing that we've seen is that there are there is a lot of hesitancy in the black and brown communities um, for very valid reasons, uh, specifically in the black community, the Tuskegee experiments. Um, In the brown community, in like the Latinx and other brown communities, we just see just general hesitancy toward a healthcare system that doesn't seem to be built um, to their benefit. Um, And just to provide you an an example today, um, earlier I was volunteering at a vaccine uh, vaccination clinic, Um, it seems that there is a lot of people who want to get the vaccine. But they're not given the resources to find like vaccination appointments, just kind of given how across the United States, there's a lot of different um, kind of means for people to sign up, Um, you know, websites, you know, fill up really quick, Um, people may not necessarily understand how to um, sign up using like kind of more advanced technology, or, you know, the technology may not cater to their language needs or things like that. So you know, moving forward, it's really important that um, people or like you know, healthcare providers, healthcare systems, really tailor to every possible need, kind of to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So um, yeah, thank you.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, Thanks so much. Uh, And uh, thank you for uh, all the work that you're doing uh, to help uh, uh, folks in your community get vaccinated. That's uh, absolutely uh, critical. And as you mentioned, access is also uh, uh, a critical uh, issue. So Amy Tran is a junior at Harvard, working with you there at EMS, uh, focused on integrative biology, a minor in art, film, and visual studies. And she's the chief of the Crimson EMS uh, team. Um, uh, Ivy, uh, you're the anchor person here. What would you like to add that you that, uh, uh, what, what, that we need to kind of emphasize as we look forward to working with both our college and our high school students and influencing families?
12: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, to add to this, I guess uh, we've, in the past Crimson EMS, which is the collegiate EMS, a uh, program at Harvard has worked with a lot of our local high schools to teach CPR and first aid, and we've actually seen a lot of enthusiasm from high schoolers to learn about kind of medicine or how they can benefit their community. So I think that this is a really great initiative, and um, I really am excited to work with Jonavi and everyone else in this team to achieve that goal.
0: Fantastic, Ivy. We look forward to it. and We look forward to. Uh, what you all can uh, build on uh, there uh, in uh, in Boston working with the teams and then the many high schools that we're recruiting right now. So now let's shift gears and let's talk about the variants. Uh, we played the videotape so that you could get a good feel for what the variants are about. We I think we have a pretty good idea why they're important now. Uh, we now know why they're more contagious and we know that uh, the b 11 is uh more contagious it's likely more lethal and it's more likely to affect young people uh and that's why it's important to us but also the south african and brazilian variants are critical as well as we look at the peaks that we just experienced we've had a terrible time with these peaks in fact we had two infections every second and two deaths every minute and are we going to head to those peaks No one knows for sure, but if we look at the data from Johns Hopkins, who's another great uh, school and another great public school of public health, we can see that virtually all countries are tracking with the the rise of these variants. And you can see Asia, Latin America, North America, Europe, Africa, uh, all of them are tracking. And this is pulled off of uh, the web just uh, very recently. I wanna draw your attention to what I think is a phenomenal, fantastic source of information. And that is Dr. Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. I set my watch by what he says. He's worked with um, both, he's worked with five presidential administrations. He's worked equally. He likes to say that he's politically agnostic and scientifically biased. Um, uh, On our enduring content and what we'll put up on the web are links to his one hour program from March 23rd. Uh, But just to give you, uh, a couple of the metaphors he's given us is, he says that we're at the eye of the hurricane and that this is a perfect storm. The fact that we're releasing our precautions and pulling back restrictions at the same time of the rise of the B117 virus is a nightmare. This is a really good article. It was in, in January and, and where science is moving at the speed of light, but still really provides people with a good description of what you saw on the video earlier and uh, highly recommend it. And we learned about the two domains. One domain is where the um, fingers of the virus can engage uh, with the um, that can engage with the uh, uh, with the uh, human cells, but also the uh, the um, uh, how it can evade and uh, evade what we're doing. And so it's critical that we kind of recognize uh, the importance of. Uh, of these variants and, and how much change can actually happen uh, uh, with them. Um, what I'd like to do uh, uh, right now is to shift gears, and uh, I'm waiting for, my, uh, for m- uh, my slides to catch up, uh, is to uh, turn uh, to, uh, to uh, Jamie Aristorsa. Uh, Jamie is a uh, fantastic uh, pre-med student who's now a medical student, incoming medical student, He's been working with us writing uh, papers. Uh, he is working with us on continuing medical education programs, uh, and is deeply into science. Uh, and uh, Jamie, uh, I'd like to have you kind of address uh, what you've seen through your work with us regarding the via- the, the variants and the spread, uh, the fact that the B11.7 virus, although the press talks about 50% increased transmissibility that translates into 11.4 times contagiousness. So one of the slides that we'll put up shortly, as soon as our slides catch up, uh, is that uh, the typical um, unprotected and unprotecting individual uh, with the wild strain would infect 406 people. With the b 11 virus, all things being remaining the same, would infect 4,900 people. Jamie, do you wanna kind of add your thoughts to the issue regarding the variants?
22: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so my degree is in molecular biology, so I look at all of this variant stuff with a sort of camera. I I am having some troubles. I I am away from my computer because I I'm having some technical issues, so I'm going to have to remain off camera today. Okay. Which I'm, no worries. Um. So I'm just uh, I look on all this variant stuff with a sort of. Crazy fascination, um, and as a biologist, I think it's it's really cool. But as somebody who's concerned about medicine, I think it's terrifying. Um, and I just like to say that you know these mutations, these like like the video said, they happen all the time. And fortunately, right now, the best data we have says that the vaccines are effective against what mutations that are out. So the South African strain, the B one one seven from the UK. But what I would like to emphasize is that you know. If those, mutate, if those mutants only mutate a little bit more, we could be back to square one and they could develop a mutant strain that it may not be effective against the vaccine. So in the meantime, while we get these vaccine efforts out, it's really, really critical that we keep the caseloads low because the, the rate of mutation is directly proportional to how many cases there are. And if you have a million cases, there's more opportunities for the virus to mutate into something that you don't want to mutate it. So, um, I think it's very important that we all stay together, stay the course, social distance, wear masks, get your vaccine when you can. And, you know, like Jonavi said, I'm very interested in encouraging the young people, especially in all the vaccine hesitant groups um, to get the vaccine. And you, when you look at the data from the galactic picture, sometimes it might be a little bit intimidating to see that there's millions of Americans who are potentially hesitant. But if you break that down and each one of the people on this webinar gets a vaccine, and can share their personal experience about how the vaccine was safe and effective and um, they protected them. And you share that experience with one person who you know who may be hesitant about the vaccines will make a major dent in the number of people who are hesitant about the vaccine. So I really would just encourage all of you to share your experiences and stay the course.
0: Fantastic. Uh, uh, Dr. Peabody uh, talk now, Give us a perspective as to how serious these variants might be uh, from an emergency medicine perspective and from from your your practice.
20: Yeah, that's a hard uh, question to answer as far as to predict um, um, how uh, future variants may uh, affect us. I will say that we're um, in the emergency department uh, much more adept at uh, dealing with coronavirus than we were at the uh, beginning of the pandemic. Um, Currently, vaccines are still very effective against most of the variants, um, and that is very encouraging. Um, The uh, amount of cases that I see of severe coronavirus have gone down virtually, um, you know, precipitously dropped. Um, I think we have six admitted um, uh, patients with coronavirus in our hospital, and five of those are, are, are admitted for other reasons than their coronavirus at the moment, which is a, just a profound drop in the amount of cases that we've we've had in our hospital, um, which is a safety net hospital here in San Francisco. Um, and so I can't, um, I, you know, as far as variants goes, um, we will have to stay vigilant. Uh, we will have to um, do public health testing. Um, testing and um, isolation and tracing are gonna be even more important as uh, variants uh, uh, come up. Um, and so we really have to focus in on those public health measures that, Um, uh, will keep us safe uh, moving forward.
0: Dr. Boats, thank you so much for taking time to record this section. We know you're taking care of patients today in the ICU. The goal is just to review our survive and thrive courses that we've developed. What's new and what should we emphasize now a year later, uh, we started the program in March of 2020 and now we find ourselves in March of 2021. The first one is coming home safely, what do we know about uh, coming from a high-risk environment, disinfection, and then maintaining things at home regarding contact surfaces, hand washing, uh, masks, and ventilation?
8: Well, I think over the course of the last year, we've learned an awful lot about how to behave during a pandemic, especially a respiratory virus pandemic like COVID, Um, and I think a lot of what we put together in the first sessions um, really still applies but maybe there are some corrections that we can make based on new information that's come out. So for instance, uh, we were very concerned at the beginning about the transmission of the virus on contact surfaces and it looks like based on the data over the course of the last year that that's not as important as we thought it was. Not that it's not important, we still should practice Um, Good hygiene um, in the house or especially around someone who is uh, currently infected with COVID 19. Um, But perhaps it isn't as much of a threat as we saw before. But the other public health strategies, like wearing a mask and washing your hands frequently and keeping a safe physical distance, still apply. They're still important, even in the times now with uh, vaccinations. They still remain a very important part of our strategy to reduce infection and reduce. Uh, the need for people to be hospitalized or need ICU care.
0: Fantastic. Our second survive and thrive course we'll talk about today is keeping our kids safe. And we did not tell people when to allow their kids to return to school, but actually taught them about uh, threats, vulnerabilities, and then an assessment of risk, depending on the community spread and the vulnerabilities of the families. And those are pretty well-preserved However, what we need to do is now be able to interpret that within the context of the CDC guidelines for for schools. Is that a fair statement? And what would you like to add to that?
8: Well, that's absolutely true. And in fact, we have been gathering data all along about the risks, the threats and vulnerabilities in our kids. And what we know is that the risk of transmission in schools is incredibly low, not zero, but very low so that the risk of community spread in that environment is much less than the community spread perhaps in their home environment. And that there's data that show that, uh, that uh, kids may not have such a severe disease uh, that would require uh, hospitalization or ICU level care that we thought might be uh, emerging, especially with variants that are coming out. I think we're seeing numbers now that are showing that our our strategies for assessing risk and vulnerability and our strategies for keeping our kids safe are still sound.
0: Fantastic. Then a big part of a number of our survive and thrive courses were creating the family safety plan and going through the five R's which you have led us through beautifully in terms of uh, readiness and response and uh, rescue and recovery and resilience. Um, is that framework just as strong as it was before, now interpreted between, uh, for, within the context of the new science?
8: Well, I think that absolutely the 5R strategy, the 5R approach to managing and mitigating the risks for our families is just as strong now as it was before. I think, though, that we have more information that helps make more robust plans and allows us to make more refined plans so that we reduce the risk to our family units, to our community um, with real information based on data that uh, helps us to make informed decisions.
0: Now, a very important component and very important guide was preparing to care for someone at home and you, provided just excellent clinical understanding of how to convert a room in your home to an isolation room and know how to take care of someone at home along with Heather Foster and other clinical experts that are part of our team from emergency medicine and a number of disciplines. Uh, Does that change at all now? I don't
8: think it changes at all. I think that uh, we still have the same plan in place Um, In order to keep our family safe, in order to better take care of the person who has COVID infection, we've made some course direction changes, we may have made some changes in uh, the needs in any particular circumstance, but the framework is sound and I think we still need to encourage people to follow that family plan uh, for caring for someone at home.
0: Wonderful. And fairly recently, we undertook the development of our survive and thrive guide regarding emergency medicine. And we don't see anything new there, especially in light of the variants that might be a more transmissible, b they may be more lethal, and c uh, they uh, are kind of a new, uh, a, a new twist uh, with that, uh, that could be a, a, a cause further surges in the future. And we don't see any changes in, in what we would do to get someone to the emergency department, how to support them and get them home, do we?
8: Well, I think that uh, as you say, we are seeing some variants emerging that have perhaps different virulence or, or different implications for people, but the healthcare system is still responding in the same way. The structure that we have put in place to both protect our healthcare workers and our healthcare environments stay the same the changes in emergency medicine, uh, environment and practice stay the same. We're still practicing uh, public health strategies to try to reduce the spread of of COVID-19 while paying particular attention to try to protect our healthcare workers. And that's still important, even though the overwhelming majority of healthcare workers have been vaccinated, we still need to keep those public health strategies in place.
0: You did a terrific job in helping us understand what we need to know as family members when we have someone in the ICU, which is where you deliver the critical care at both the University of Texas and at Stanford and 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 help train our future doctors how to deliver that care. That was very recent. Anything to add there now in light of the variants?
8: I don't think so. I think that we are learning uh, with data that's emerging from the study of the care of patients early in the... Pandemic about how to best provide critical care. Um, the strategies, the resources are still the same. We're learning more about some of the adjunct medications like immunotherapy drugs that we might use. We're learning about some of the medications that perhaps we were trialing that didn't work and we're no longer using. Um, but we're still using the same strategy of trying to avoid the need for mechanical ventilation and trying to optimize the physiology of the respiratory system Uh, while caring for people who are under the course of uh, the COVID infection. I think we know more about it. We have more strategies for its management and we're learning more about the use of adjunct medications to help perhaps shorten the infection or shorten the impact or lessen the impact of an infection in someone who does present with COVID
0: disease. We wish you could be here with us live to address vaccines, the variants, and the road to recovery or the road to victory. Anything you'd like to add to this program? Well, I think there's a
8: lot of concern about variants and what impact that will have on perhaps another wave of infections in our communities. And I will say that there's significant concern about some of the variants, but there are more than 200 variants that have been identified and not all of them are really clinically significant. And we're learning more about the variants from Brazil or South Africa or from the UK that are helping us to better prepare for those variants. But I think that despite the variant that's in our population, the care that we're delivering and our plans for keeping each other safe, especially our family safety plans, remain the same. And the foundation of those safety plans is using the public health strategies that we've been talking about all along. Wearing a mask, washing your hands, keeping a safe physical distance, and still to some extent, cleaning contact surfaces to just be sure that we don't have an opportunity to spread the virus.
0: Fantastic, we really are fighting a war. Some of the weapons change, but we still are battling the same, the same enemy, aren't we?
8: I think that's right.
0: So as we, as we think about our next Survive and Thrive Guide, it is regarding the long haulers and recovery of those that have had severe disease you've managed some of our sickest patients as cancer patients and also as COVID-19 severe disease uh, uh, afflicted patients. Uh, Anything you'd like to add as we kind of head down that highway of now talking about the long haulers and some of these multi-system inflammatory conditions that can occur?
8: Well, I think we are all learning quite a bit about the prolonged recovery phase from COVID that some patients a minority of patients, but some patients present with that leaves them with respiratory or cardiac or neurologic symptoms for far longer than the infection itself. And we're learning strategies on how to both manage their symptoms and to manage their reintegration back into their home life and their work life in a way that is meaningful for them. They can be, um, you know, back into their regular activities in a measured way. Uh, but safely, and I think that there's much more to learn, and there are many more opportunities for the medical community to learn how to best support our patients who find themselves in that prolonged phase of recovery.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Boats. Final question is, it's been a wonderful journey with you as a co-founder of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. As we think about landing at the new normal, and this pandemic is, past and there may be future pandemics, adding a new layer of infection control and infection prevention and protection to what we do for the typical emergencies that might happen before EMS arrives. Uh, Any encouragement that you can uh, add regarding adding those layers of protecting victims as well as ourselves, as well as those that are bystanders?
8: Well, absolutely. Our focus in MedTech has been to educate as many people as we can about recognizing and managing life-threatening situations with simple interventions to try to reduce harm, to try to reduce uh, death in preventable situations. And I think that with the advent of the pandemic, we've learned a lot about how to keep each other safe. And I think what our bystanders will implement as part of the MedTAC program is an increased awareness of the transmission of respiratory viruses and other communicable diseases that might temper how we approach medical emergencies in the future will become part of how we address intervening and interacting with our loved ones and others who may have a medical emergency that we have identified, but need to, to try to manage before our professional first responders can arrive.
0: Dr. Boats, we know that uh, there are many young people that are participating in the joyous celebrations of spring break, Easter vacations, ski weeks, and then upcoming summer vacations. Any advice to our younger population who can be super spreaders, but also can be a source of great leadership?
8: Well, I think you all know that my daughter has been part of this program. She's currently a junior in college and very much involved in the MedTAC program. And I think the message that I would give to her and to her her cohort, to her peers, is that this is a real threat to you and to your loved ones and that we still need to to, uh, keep the faith with our program that pays attention to public health strategies and that looks at trying to reduce the risk in our populations. And while trying to get back to a new normal, we have to be aware that this pandemic is not over yet. We are gaining great grounds with the vaccinations that are taking place, but it's gonna be a little bit more time before we settle into that new normal. And they need to not only keep up that public health strategy but also encourage their, their friends and their colleagues, their classmates, their roommates to do the same because getting that message out to their peers is much more powerful than if you and I try to tell them that this is really a A valuable behavior and so we depend on our on our young group of college students and others who are working with us in this program to spread the word to be the the role model for their peers in trying to keep our community safe
0: and to help everyone understand that it's important to take the shot and play it safe right
8: absolutely get vaccinated it's really an important part of our plan to mitigate the coronavirus. Please get vaccinated.
0: Charlie Denham is a high school student, co-founder of the MedTech bystander rescue care program, leads our lifeguard surf program, and is one of the leaders of the MedTech student outreach program. He will share the family lifeguard program he helped develop during the holiday coronavirus surge. David Besch, who is an award-winning educator, A MedTech master instructor and an Eagle Scout advisor to Charlie and a group of scouts placing rescue stations at beaches in Southern California helped deploy the lifeguard program to more than 20,000 families over the holidays. Mr. Bashk also saved the first life through MedTech after his first seven weeks working with us. When the holiday surge hit, our team knew that families and friends would gather despite the warnings of public health officials so a checklist of precautions were developed to take before, during, and after an event to protect the participants. The goal was to prevent what the team called double bubble trouble, where the families and friends would share the same air and touch items that would transmit the virus. One objective was to avoid becoming what the CDC defines as a close contact if someone were to become infected. Charlie and guests over the Thanksgiving break tested the concept refined it and deployed it to scouts, students and families. Now spring break, ski weeks, Easter and summer vacations pose similar risks until the virus is fully in control.
23: Good morning, Charlie.
0: Spring break, ski week, Easter vacation
23: and other long weekends are unfortunately super spreader events. We really think our holiday lifeguard message can help. Charlie, isn't it exciting that we had such a great response to our holiday lifeguard program? Absolutely, Mr. Resh. We knew the
12: youth and young adults would step up.
23: The virus variant from the UK is important. A single infected person can infect more than 11 times as many people, and they are more lethal. Do you think young people know the risk? No, Mr.
12: Resh, everyone is tired of staying apart and they wanna get back to normal. I don't think they know.
23: I agree. You know, as a, as a teacher, Charlie, I'm excited that we have more vaccines on the way. What message should be sent to young people? We need to urge them to make sure to get their
12: families vaccinated as soon as possible. The sooner they do, the safer they will be.
23: Agreed. Charlie, do you believe that Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and Girl Scouts have a role to play?
12: Yes, I do. Helping their families and communities is just what they need to do.
23: It's a great opportunity to lead. I agree. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Mr. Rush.
0: So so what I'd like to do uh, right now is uh, to shift gears. Uh, to uh, invite Randy Steiner uh, to speak, uh, Randy is uh, one of our uh, uh, terrific uh, leaders. Uh, in uh, and I need to make sure that I'm not sharing right now. Randy, we, what we'd like to do is just thank you so much for uh, uh, your contributions as a the Um, Director of Emergency Preparedness at the University of California, Irvine. You've also written uh, a book regarding uh, 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 acute trauma management as a result of uh, what happened to your family earlier on in life. Um, We want to ask you about the opportunity for these membership groups, the young people that we can reach through families and membership organizations like Scouting, like uh, faith-based organizations, and these, these groups that work and learn and uh, are educated together. What would you like to add to what we've uh, uh, discussed and where our opportunities lie?
13: First of all, thank you very much, Chuck. I really appreciate being here. And for the, uh, the comments of everybody on the panel, it's really um, just providing a great perspective on you know where we've gone, and how far we're moving on this, this pandemic and this crisis. Uh, you know, we've, we, as, as Paul Batia, uh mentioned in his video, you know, we've been really active in doing uh, vaccine coordination and, and distribution at the at UCI. We've done about uh, 46,000 vaccines at that one site so far, and we're really looking uh, forward with a lot of anticipations. Other sites uh, open up around the county. The county's just opening up the uh, super site at the Costa Mesa Fairgrounds. I believe that, that went live yesterday. Um, but really, you know, to reach out to these groups you know, these student organizations, you know, engagement is so important. I mean, you know, when we were starting this process, like you mentioned, Chuck, um, you know, engaging our student groups to be part of the process, uh, you know, AMS, our, our anti ems group on campus was a huge factor in developing that, that the hospital see, have the mobile hospital, the hospital that was set up there, like you mentioned, um, you know, when we were looking for that level of engagement, they were right there. They've also been very involved as well with other student groups and our, our ambassador ambassadors in doing um, our COVID uh, a support center, our, our uh, COVID uh, uh, contact tracing. We've actually trained a lot of our students on campus to be contact tracers. And of course the support uh, from our volunteers from uh, AMS student groups and other student volunteers. Uh, to help us out at you know at the pod at the point of dispensing, uh, where we're actually delivering the vaccine, you know, we our uh, uh, the scout group that I'm involved with, um, you know, recently has has you know given information that you know scout leaders are eligible and the eligible here for getting the vaccine. So um, you know, reaching out to those groups, you know, to be role models for the students. Uh, or the, the scouts or other, you know, people involved in those, is really important. You know, we really got to model the behavior that we want to see our, our youth, you know, go rise to um, and reaching out to those groups, showing, you know, discussing the vaccine, maintaining, uh, you know, all of our COVID safety protocols at our gatherings and our outings, but, you know, not not loosening those protocols, but still encouraging, uh, people to take advantage of the vaccine as it comes. We've had several scouts. My son, he's 16. He just got his first dose of Pfizer uh, two days ago. Uh, many of the other scouts in our group, in our particular uh, troop, are, are also getting their, their their vaccines and starting to return to school. Of course, you know, maintaining all that uh, distancing and mask wearing and all the other things that cause we have to also. Um, You know, really reinforce that. I'm really encouraged, not just by, you know, the level of participation we've got in the county um, from the individual citizens in the county getting the vaccine, like I said, 46,000 vaccines. It's it's just a a, a massive number. Um, We're really taking a bite out of of the, the population that really needs that. But, you know, everywhere I go, even people who have been vaccinated, a lot of vaccinations, people are still, you know, wearing masks, they're still social distancing, they're only spending so much time in the stores. And it's really encouraging to see that that in the county in general, um, that, uh, you know, people have really taken this seriously throughout this process. And I think that's why, you know, we just moved into the orange tier uh, for COVID infections, um, cases in Orange County, while, you know, the, the initial video you know shows trends uh, you know alarming trends nationwide in, in our little neck of the, of the world we, we seem to be moving in the right direction so you know reinforcing those um you know the, the 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 good behavior and and encouraging people to take care of themselves encouraging people to to get the vaccine and uh, make them understand why i think it's is really important and just continuing to keep people engaged you know make people understand that you know, this isn't over. This isn't over. You know, any we're not nowhere near the end of this. We're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you know, we've seen that a couple of times. So, you know, right now when cases are starting to go down, is a time when we really need to be vigilant and keep that that next surge from occurring. We're at that crux right now where we can do that, and engaging people like this great group of students and, and volunteers on this this call, um, and you know encouraging their leadership to go out to their peers and their groups and really model that good behavior and, you know, make people understand how this vaccine works and why it's going to work um, and and how important it is to gathering this, this herd immunity that we've always talked about. You know, it's not going to be getting a whole bunch of people sick. It's going to be getting people from getting sick. And that vaccine is going to be the, the key to that. And we're seeing the results of that. You know, right now with these, these numbers of the vaccine really trending in the right direction. That would be my encouragement.
0: Well, fantastic, and we really appreciate your uh, leadership both at, at, at UCI and as well in the scout community, which brings me to Manway Lopez. Manway is uh, our district executive for uh, our division here in Orange County, a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, uh, a really terrific leader, uh, um, Manway, do you think that uh, membership organizations are ready for the kind of things that Genevieve and the other students want to bring them? And uh, you know, are 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 there ready-made razors for these kinds of blades to really kind of get moving right away and to be able to help? I believe so. As a as a a a scout leader in our community, that there there isn't a better fit for Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, faith-based organizations, high schools, anybody that wants to generate community service recognition. Nothing better than helping overcome the vaccine hesitancy. What do you think? Do you think these membership organizations are ready to go?
24: I think that uh, for the most part, one of the interesting things about organizations like mine, the Boy Scouts of America, is they're all about leadership. They're all about giving back to your communities, all about taking a stance for for the common good. And So to answer your question, I think absolutely Um, that you see... Even throughout these past few months, numerous scouts step up into positions where they're not only advocating for safety and for precautions and for innovation, you know, they're making it happen. They're taking active stances, they're making changes, and you can see the adaptations throughout the whole past year, and it's been really encouraging to me to see the youth leadership that exists today. And I think within those organizations and organizations like mine, there's absolutely a readiness and a willingness to participate in such efforts.
0: And do you think that there are international? Because we have a lot of international folks that will be following this uh, uh, as uh, recorded enduring content because of the time zones and many people that are at work today that are kind of out of the typical domains that we uh, that we work with. Do you think that this is a global opportunity?
24: Absolutely. I mean, every. Common good and working for community service is not something that is uh, domestically uh, only existent here. And I mean, within Scouting and other organizations, they are already global, worldwide organizations that share ideas, share dialogue, and work towards a common goal. So I think absolutely it's ready for global uh, efforts.
0: Fantastic. What I'm gonna do is uh, uh, we're gonna keep our discussion going and loop back with everyone. But what we wanted to do was uh, uh, just make sure that uh, everyone that's on live uh, will be able to participate uh, in our uh, uh, the our program, uh, our research program. We're almost at 1000 uh, participants uh, in terms of uh, uh, our family survey. And so uh, our Uh, Kyle Kemp, our leader in Austin, is going to put up uh, uh, a survey for those of you that are participating live. We would love to have you contribute uh, to our survey. It's got five questions. We ask about uh, readiness, uh, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. Uh, We would love to have you answer these questions on where you think you are today. We're going to start analyzing the data next week. We know we'll be over 1,000 by uh, Sunday night and we'd like to be able to, uh, to do that. So there are, uh, there are th- these questions of what we call the four Rs. I'm gonna uh, throw it back to Dr. Uh, Peabody uh, and uh, ask him, uh, now that we kind of are pulling this all together, Tough uh, as we look at, uh, you've done just a terrific job helping us uh, put the meat on the bone on our model called the five rights, and you helped us with the five rights of emergency care right provider, right diagnosis, right treatment, right discharge and right follow-up. And in our longer enduring content version, we have Dr. Uh, uh, Greg Boats, uh, who addresses our prior, um, our prior survive and thrive guides and what's new as we are now on this road to recovery. Uh, what should we know about going to the emergency department and your field of emergency medicine as we, uh, as we are on this road to recovery, but we may have this surge, we don't know yet, maybe we won't, the plateau or a slow decline or a surge. Uh, what, what do we need to know and what would you like us to know about as we think about emergency medicine?
20: Well, Chuck, I think the five rights is an excellent start um, for you know, uh, any visit to the emergency department, um, no matter uh, it, during which time, uh, COVID or non-COVID times. I think during COVID and related to this um, webinar in particular, um, we need to uh, uh, focus in on um, discharge precautions. And uh, uh, what you do um, out in the community really matters. When you leave the emergency department, it really matters. So, uh, continuing to wear your mask, uh, getting vaccinated when it's your turn, um, uh, continuing to the hand hygiene and um, and social distancing, following CDC guidelines um, when visiting uh, folks that are vaccinated versus unvaccinated, um, good ventilation. Uh, those are the those are the main public health. Uh, um, Kind of strategies that I think uh, post emergency department visit um, will keep you will keep you safe um, from and your family safe from coronavirus, um, and so those are the things I'd like to emphasize uh, on the five rights is that kind of discharge uh, portion uh, for any emergency department visit.
0: So, talk one question that we had is how do we know the vaccine is working so profoundly, and it just isn't people washing their hands and wearing masks and adhering to other precautions? It's a great question because it's a dynamic balance and it depends on the community, right? I mean, some are very, very good about uh, masks, social distance, ventilation, airborne, and some are highly penetrated with a vaccine. So that's a difficult question to answer, but I'll throw it to you.
20: Well, I think we know vaccines are working because of the randomized control trials that um, that were done um, during the va- during the, pre- um, the rollout and testing of the of whether or not the vaccines worked. And so, um, if you take folks who were vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, and you look at their rates of hospitalization, um, or you look at their rates of uh, um, of, of um, you know severe coronavirus um you can you can actually see that there's a a profound uh decrease um in the uh in the in the folks that were vaccinated versus non-vaccinated so i like to look at the um the trials and then um and then from that you can look at the kind of empirical evidence that's now coming out on communities that are getting vaccinated um, and so you look at the amount of uh, deaths, and you look at the amount of hospitalizations that we have in, um, in the folks over 65, and you can take nursing homes, for example, who were our top priority. And most um, folks got vaccinated that were in nursing homes, and now we see a lot fewer deaths and a lot fewer hospitalizations because of the vaccine. Um, because we were doing those things uh, previously. We were trying to do the the, uh, public health strategies of hand washing, mask wearing, um, and we saw, um, you know, uh, again, a surge after surge. Um, And so I I don't think we've changed our practice profoundly um, in each community. Um, uh, It's the vaccine that's made a a huge difference, um, uh, at least in the last uh, month or two.
0: Thank you, Toph, for your great insights. It's a real pleasure to introduce Chief Bill Adcox, who is the Chief Security Officer of the MD Anderson Cancer Center and the Chief of Police of the University of Texas Police Department at Houston. He's one of the pioneers of threat safety science. Bill, what are your thoughts regarding vaccinations and essential workers, first responders, those in law enforcement, as it relates to getting vaccinations for their families?
25: thank you Uh, first and foremost getting vaccinated is critical those of us in the uh, law enforcement field uh, most of us have already received the vaccination and understand the importance of it our next our next challenge is really truly is not only that is our families our friends in the community so that we can protect each other and and get past uh, this this real uh, problem that we're having now but most important, I think, is the, is the, those of, of the age of 18 to 29 years of age because of their hesitancy and because of the fact that they seem to be the ones getting infected the most now. So we've got to get these vaccines out to everybody, but particularly that 18 to 29 years of age group.
0: Well, thank you, Bill, that's, uh, that's great advice and critical to protect those families. Okay, I just leave a, a space to edit, okay. Now we're talking about the variants. So, Bill, what advice do you have to those essential workers and those on the front line regarding the variants? This is uh, definitely a serious
25: issue. Oh, absolutely. If we don't get vaccinated and these variants keep coming out and getting worse, uh, we're going to we're going to get into a much worse situation than we've ever been in. The variants have to be taken serious. We have to push for vaccinations we have to continue with our precautions such as masking and distancing and so forth but the variants are very scary Uh, we know that in our field and we're going to do everything we can to protect each other
0: perfect perfect okay now now it's the new normal so bill as we let me restart bill you and i talked oh you have to wait for you to look up okay Bill, Bill, as we've uh, discussed this uh, this road to victory on the bridge to the new normal is critical. What advice do you have to the essential workers, their families, the frontline law enforcement regarding that new normal? Uh, it really isn't the old normal, is it?
25: Oh, no, it's not. And uh, I think there's no doubt in anyone's mind, particularly the professionals, uh, that pandemics are gonna be with us forever. And they're gonna we're gonna have additional pandemics at some time in our life. And because of that, we have to keep our guard up. We have to understand the safeguards. We have to take all those precautions and continue with those. So we cannot go back to the old normal. We have to continue, but we have to understand uh, that we're always at risk and we have to be cautious and remember those precautions because the new normal is gonna be critical to our future and our lives.
0: So these layers of precautions are gonna be part of our daily life. Is that a fair statement regarding your, your group, your constituency?
25: I think so. I, I really do. And particularly with where I, I'm employed and working in the hospitals, I think they've learned so much and they're, they're going to be changing their practices forever. We're going to be doing that even within our own organization as we move forward. We're going to see more individuals that will be working from home. You're going to see a different layouts within the buildings. You're going to see our precautions. Some of those precautions that we're doing now are going to continue on because not only with the pandemic and and looking at COVID-19, but we've also seen some positive impact on other types of, of, uh, of uh, viruses and so forth. So yes, I don't think there's any doubt that there's gonna be a, a new normal and, and we have to continue with our precautions.
0: Thank you, Bill. Great job, appreciate it. John Little, who you see in uh, the upper right-hand corner of our speakers is not only a volunteer, a uh, uh, medical volunteer for Saddleback Church in Orange County here, but also uh, a security volunteer, having been both a paramedic and law enforcement. And uh, we'll just have him make a comment. And then I'm gonna go through each one of our uh, leaders uh, uh, today and, and, and ask for final comments. And we'll close with uh, Jennifer Dingman's comments. John, you're a terrific volunteer, both in the medical area Uh, having been a paramedic and uh, helping in that in the faith-based organizations, but also uh, uh, having been in law enforcement providing security. How important is it that those volunteers for, the medical volunteers and those for security, be good role models regarding masks and social distance and vaccines?
26: Well, I think it's uh, very important. Uh, I know we just had the reopening of our church uh, this Sunday, Palm Sunday, and Rick, our pastor, Rick Warren, uh, made it clear that uh, we should all be good role models, and all the uh, volunteers, all the staff, uh, were required to wear, wear a mask at the church.
0: John, there there is some opposition to the masks, but as you deal with it in a very positive way, uh, you, you're able to overcome that resistance. Is that a fair statement?
26: Oh, yes. Yes, a hundred percent.
0: Fantastic. And then, John, the other thing is, is that you're uh, really helping your church, and we're helping you with our MedTech program. Make sure that we add the extra layers of protection with automatic defibrillators, extra masks, and that extra layer of infection prevention that we can add to first aid and first responders. Would you advise other churches and other organizations to do the
11: same?
26: Oh yes, sir. I think. Um I know at Saddleback, I've been a member of Saddleback uh, many years now, probably 20, 25 years at least. And in the recent years, the last probably 10 years, medical group and security at Saddleback, we strive, I think, to be an example for other organizations, other faith-based um,
0: organizations, to have the best uh, protection, the best experience while you're uh, attending church. Well, John, thank you so much for helping lead the training of our MedTech programs with Stop the Bleed program for the American College of Surgeons, where we've helped get your folks uh, trained in that, and also as a CPR instructor and in helping uh, in that. You're, you've been a great role model, and thanks for helping inspire other organizations.
26: Well, thank, thank you, doctor. I love your uh, webinars, and you're, you're doing a, a great job. You're basically the, the backbone for uh, everything we're, we're doing. And um, thank you.
0: Thanks, John. So what I'd like to do now in, in closing is just uh, um, uh, remind you that we have longer interviews with Dr. Gregory Boats, our lead clinical uh, uh, expert, and we address each and every one of the Survive and Thrive guides courses, all nine that we've put together and what's new. And basically, uh, there, there isn't a lot new other than that we would... Uh, l- put less emphasis on cleaning high contact surfaces and an enormous amount of emphasis on ventilation, use of masks, fit filtration and cleanliness of the masks and a number of things that we're working with uh, 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 with uh, 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 Jamie Aristorsa on. Uh, Heather Foster, you'll hear from her regarding this new layer of the new normal and wh- how important it is uh, for us to be adding uh, infection prevention to what we do in bystander care and the encouragement of caregivers. Uh, Brittany Bartow covers some of the additional areas that are important to regarding vaccines and our wonderful leader from law enforcement, uh, uh, Bill Adcox, you'll hear from him as well. Uh, I just want to uh, uh, ask, uh, is Keith Glittner on today? I didn't see him uh, in our gallery. We've heard from Randy Steiner. Uh, Jamie, is there any more that you would like to add as we wrap up?
22: No, I think this has been great and really informative. Thanks again for hosting this.
0: Thanks, Uh, and Genevieve, uh, what's your encouragement to our leadership teams for uh, our our students? I think we were taken aback by uh, what a great opportunity we have just in your age group, in addition to the other groups that are hesitant.
21: Yeah, I guess like don't take it as a given that your friends are going to get vaccinated. Uh, I definitely am going to talk a lot more to my friends than I was planning to because I just assumed they would all get vaccinated, and that our work is more important than it ever was. I mean, that, that it's always been important, but it's even more important now because we're not doing the second degree of getting the students to talk to the parents. We're actually getting students to to do to you know com- communicate and do it themselves. And if anyone watching has a high school student in America who would like to, um, you know, do some vaccination work at their school, please reach out. Uh, we'd love to support them.
0: Fantastic! Great, great idea, Danny uh Anything you'd like to add?
22: Uh, no, sir. Just thank you again so much for having me today. I definitely learned a lot.
0: So, Luis, I think we've got uh, really good, uh, good, good ideas for what we'll add to our app. Yeah, I
22: completely agree. Uh, Uh, But first, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for hosting this. And hopefully, in terms of the apps, we can start to see some uh, beta testing and also hopefully deploying it in the
0: next coming weeks. Great, and I look forward to that with our college students as well. I think we've got another target now that we know more about hesitancy. Manway, thank you for your great leadership in scouting and also uh, helping encourage and inspire our young people and our leaders for young people. Is there anything you'd like to add?
24: Um. No, uh, just thank you so much for hosting and for having me and uh, for all the great work that our panelists are doing, please keep doing it. And your example does ha- pave a way for others to follow.
0: Well, thanks. And uh, Dominic, we're we're so excited to hear about how you've been helping and you and Ivy are working uh, diligently there in Boston uh, at Harvard, but also uh, serving your communities. Uh, anything for our role models that you'd like to share?
17: Um first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, I guess the one thing I would like to add is just always be cognizant of, you know, kind of those around you and their needs and how they may differ from you. Um, and from that, you know, just recognizing that you can find ways to help them in ways you never thought before. So, yeah, thank you.
0: Fantastic. Ivy, your thoughts?
12: Um, yeah, again, thank you for so much for hosting this. And yeah, I kind of, Everyone has said that how important it is to be a good role model and also checking with your friends and family because it's not a given that you know they'll get the vaccine or if they're feeling hard feelings about. Um, it, you can definitely help them understand
0: the process better.
12: But yeah, thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you. And so as we close and we start to head uh, in the home stretch here to listen to Jennifer, who's always got great ideas, the voice of the patients. Top, I come back to our, ne- our next webinar will be recovery, the long haulers, the loss, and caregivers and the PACs and MISC and MISA. Anything you'd like to help us understand how serious some of these conditions are that are young that, that can affect our young people and their parents alike? Anything you'd like to uh, help us understand as we as we close out today?
20: This is an interesting uh, new phenomenon, uh, uh, and I look forward to learning more from uh, from your webinar, Chuck, and seeing how we can best serve our patients.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Ta- Top, and thank you for taking your time. Your time is so precious, and thank you for taking care of patients the way you do. You're so dedicated. It's really fun to talk to you, knowing that when you were in medical school back uh, when we met at Harvard, and now we have the Harvard students leading here, it's kind of a great circle of, uh, of excellence that I see in, in all of you. Uh, I just want to let you know the final slides actually are an article that just was released regarding the, this PAX the post-acute COVID-19 syndrome. And you heard Genevieve mention, you know, the concern regarding athletes. And if young people do get this disease, uh, especially those that are more prone to do so, uh, this can really uh, you know, affect us. So this article was recently released. We're going to dig into it much more deeply in our next webinar when we talk about the long haulers and those that have these long-term symptoms and, uh, and are harmed uh, by, these, uh, 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 by this disease, which is we're learning about all the time. Well, Jennifer, we typically will come to you kind of partway through for your reaction. We'd love to give you a chance to react to everything you've heard. And would you please close us out? Thank you for, thank God bless all of you. Thank you for uh, all that you've done. We always want the, the first word and the last word to be representative of the patients we serve. Uh, Jennifer, can you uh, wrap us up? And uh, thank you for being so steadfast in your support.
1: Oh, well, Thank you, Dr. Denham, And thank all of our speakers, the doctors, nurses, and others who have been so educational on this webinar with regard to the variants and the vaccines. I have to tell you as an advocate, I've been getting a lot of emails, messages, and phone calls for advice on vaccines, which one should I get, should I get it, should I not? And all I can do because I'm just a a patient advocate is refer them to the CDC website and the websites of the manufacturers until today. This webinar has been so informative. I've learned so much. And and I guarantee you, everyone who comes to me in the future and those who have come in the past are going to get a link to this as soon as it's up. Because it is. I think it is going to put to rest so many fears that so many people are having out there. Because now I understand way better than I did before myself. So I can't imagine all the good that it's going to do for the other people who listen to this and, and watch this. Um, And lastly, I would like to thank the Saddleback Church for being such wonderful spiritual leaders for the Christian community in our country. Um, At this point in time, it is so very important that we have good leadership in in the faith community. And I strongly encourage uh, Pastor Warren and the folks from Saddleback to go forth and, and possibly find your way to the TV shows on the news networks, especially because I think You will save so many lives just with your leadership and your steadfastness. And I have to thank you for that. It really melted my heart to hear what was said. So anyway, as I said earlier, everybody please share and uh, get with your colleagues, families, friends, everybody that you know to watch this webinar and all of the others because they're really incredibly excellent. And I'm kind of speechless after today. So thank you again. Dr. Denham and the team, God bless everyone. And we'll
0: see you next month. Thank you so much. And for uh, the majority of our viewers are now watching uh, after the fact and thank you for the international viewers and those that are joining our teams to work with, uh, uh, w- with us uh, globally. We really appreciate your support and keep watching the website and the webpage and we'll keep posting uh, results and longer interviews. Thanks to everyone. And uh, we'll see you next month.